This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? When we approach the scriptures, all too often we rely on what people have told us about them instead of taking it upon ourselves to hear it correctly. We become beguiled with strange ideas and sensational heresies. If we don't listen to the scriptures closely, we will not know the scriptures, and we will naturally not know when they are warped and causing us to go astray. When we do this, we cannot be surprised when things go awry and death and destruction come at our doorstep. Because God has warned us of this beforehand, he has told us so, whether we listened to his words or not. So let us be attentive. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So there's two really, really important words to hear and understand in the Hebrew. And those two words sound exactly the same in the Hebrew. They're both arom, but one of them means naked and the other one means crafty. Now, obviously, this wordplay is intentional and striking, and it's part of the reason why we chose to leave that little bit of the end of chapter 2 out of last episode and add it on to this one, because the ending of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 really flow together. Remember that the verse and chapter distinctions are really only about 500 years old. And so before this, 
the book of Genesis as well as the other books of the Bible were all just one long continuous scroll. So we have to keep that in mind. So these are two very interesting words that aren't identical to each other in Hebrew as they come from different roots, but the wordplay is certainly there. It reminds me of the connection between yara and ra'a that I mentioned in our second episode. Uh, to make this even more confusing, these two words are both pronounced the same way. So hearing this instead of reading it, it'll sound very much like the same word. In the English, this wordplay is lost, but in Father Paul Tarazi's book, The Rise of Scripture, he opts for an alternate translation that gets the point across a bit more directly and that he translates the word arom to smooth. Uh, in English, smooth connotes a cunning slickness while also bearing in mind the smoothness of naked skin. So just as the Hebrew sound arom carries two meanings, the English word smooth communicates a similar idea. So why is this wordplay on Arom used in this instance? Well, for one, there is something beguiling about a serpent as opposed to the other behemoth that remesh or creep on the ground. First of all, the serpent is closest to the Adama in that it literally crawls on its belly with the appearance of eating the very dust that Adam was born from. Serpents are also arom in that they are naked in a similar way that humans are. In other words, they aren't covered in fur. So there's an unmistakable commonality that the scriptural authors are drawing upon between the Adam and the serpent. And that's what makes the serpent such an unsettling foe to humanity because of how close they are in proximity, at least from the point of view of the scriptural authors. The Arom man was more easily duped by the serpent because the serpent was the most Arom of all the animals, both in the sense of their nakedness and in their intelligence and witty nature. Now, culturally, we don't really relate to this as much. When we think of other animals that are more like human beings, we might go to uh, more of our biological uh, cousins, like, you know, other apes, chimpanzees, gorillas, you know, other primates. But uh, in the ancient world, um, it was a little different. The closest animals to us, at least according to scripture, are the serpents for this reason. And so when we look at the surrounding culture, we can kind of see how this is, uh, this is played out. Um, so shifting to the second meaning of Arom, or I should say the second word, um, this connotes wisdom. And in the ancient Near East, the serpent was used symbolically to denote wisdom, specifically the wisdom of the king. One of the most recognizable images of this type of regal serpent is on the adornment of the Egyptian pharaohs in art. The headdresses they wear iconographically give them the appearance of a cobra, signifying not only the wisdom of the king, but also the divine authority and sovereignty of the monarch. As we've already stated in this podcast, the Bible is very much against the idea of a human king, and therefore turns this idea upside down with images of God's throne being surrounded by burning serpents, commonly known to us as the seraphim. 
There are also examples where God's sovereignty is represented by serpents, such as the serpent that forms from Moses' staff when confronting the Pharaoh, or the bronze serpent that heals the Israelites in the book of Numbers. So serpents can mean either thing. It can either mean God's wisdom or human wisdom. It can either denote God's kingdom or the kingdoms of mankind. It all depends on our favorite word, the function in the story. But this particular serpent's function uh, is not obviously God's sovereignty, but the quote-unquote wise kings and other leaders who warp the word of God in order to enslave others to their own will. Obviously, it's not, uh, it's not a novelty to say that the serpent warps the words of God. In this passage, it's very clear. Uh, he represents the archetypal enemy of God, a competitor to the holy throne, enticing humanity with a demut Yahweh, a likeness of God that brings about moat, death, in the realm of human society, he is the king, the politician, the corrupt religious leader, the philosopher who leads people astray, or simply the diabolus, or the devil. You get my point. In scripture, human wisdom is not wisdom at all, but an unfruitful cunningness meant to trip you up and lead you to your downfall. And I also want to say that this serpent, too, it's not necessarily our cultural image of Satan as we uh, like to think of it. It's a lot more broad than that. It's any, any type of being or person or anything that pollutes the Word of God and uses the Word of God for their own uses. And uh, the serpent here is the archetypal uh, example of that. Yeah, it's like when we watch a movie uh, for the first time, all the twists and turns, if the movie's written well and directed well, and it hasn't been spoiled for you, all of those things strike you at uh, your first viewing. But then a couple months pass and you watch the movie again, and you see all of those twists and turns coming. We cannot read scripture like this because it is written in a way to subvert everything that you think you know. So the same thing applies here. The serpent in this passage is being painted not exclusively as an antagonist, but as a character, just like all of the other characters of the story that have been introduced. This character carries worldly knowledge and a sharp intelligence more than any other animal, including the humans. Again, understanding the text as it presents itself is the key here. We can't assume that the serpent is Satan or some other theological entity. He's not being presented this way in this particular text. We often read this and inflate the character of the serpent as being the big bad guy, which is ultimately the same mistake the humans make a few verses from now when they blame their disobedience on the serpent. We have to forget what we think we know in order for the text to teach us more about this character if it decides to. Not the church fathers or some contemporary scholar or philosopher. The fact that the serpent is the character representing earthly knowledge, royalty, and cunningness, and the fact that Adam and Eve listen to this character rather than listening to God is of the utmost importance to the story. That's the plot. 
So now about the nakedness of the man and his wife, it is really striking that the focus on this word is so apparent. It seems like a passing detail when we hear it in English, but in Hebrew it's it's pretty much the same word that gets translated to subtle or cunning, so the wordplay is obviously intentional and important. Uh, now, like I said, it's not literally the same word. They come from different roots, but when you hear it, right, when this was read aloud to the congregation, they sound like the same word. And so the wordplay, we have to keep that in mind continuously. Right. We won't read the whole Hebrew passage, but it says man and woman were arumim, and the serpent was arum. Arumim and arum, it's it's right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so I think the functionality of the nakedness of the man and his wife is apparent when we understand the next major word in this section, which tells us that they were unashamed. Now, first of all, I think that there's a huge misconception, and this is a misconception that I had for a long time before I started really looking into the Hebrew, is that I think culturally we we look at the story of Adam and Eve and we consider their nakedness as as signifying some form of uh, innocence. But I think it's really clear, especially from the last chapter, that uh, they weren't innocent. At least the man wasn't innocent because he was already vying for power over something. I mean, to me, that does not connote any sort of innocence. That's, like we said last episode, a red flag. Um, What this nakedness is showing and what this... Uh, what this shame is is showing is that uh, this is setting up an immensely important action throughout the scriptures, which is the action of atonement. In the original Hebrew, the word that gets translated to atonement is kippur, which means uh, covering, right? So the idea of atonement is that the shame of sin is covered as clothes cover a naked body. So obviously the man and his wife are in a state where this covering is unnecessary because the red flags of chapter 2 addressed in the previous episode have not yet evolved to the point of a mortal sin. Uh, This is what happens in in this section. So that is why they are naked, right? It's, It's functionally relating to the idea of atonement. So we need to keep that in mind. In verse 6, we hear that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. The word for saw in Hebrew is the word tere, which is from the root ra'ah, which we have discussed in previous episodes. Uh, And it can carry different shades of meaning depending on the conjugation. Uh, But it could be it could mean either to behold something or to cause something to appear, something to rise up, uh, to be beheld. The conjugation for the word in this verse is very similar in sound to the word in Genesis 1-9, when God causes the dry land to appear. Just hear it. In Genesis 1-9, it is vai terrae, and here in 3-6, it is vai terre. So the authors aren't simply saying that the woman saw that the fruit was edible, Because God already said all the trees, all the vegetation produced fruit that was good for eating, but you should not eat the fruit of this tree. But rather the authors are saying that it was beholden to her, or rather she convinced herself by listening to the serpent that it would be good to eat from this tree, despite God's warning. 
So it's really just as much her fault as it is the serpent's fault. Again, we have this tendency just to blame the serpent that he's uh, more evil than everybody else, but she's the one that listened, too. Right. The Bible is a huge literature, and we're often bored by certain passages that seem repetitive and a lot longer than they need to be. So if we recognize that as a phenomenon that exists in the Bible, then why would we look at a couple of verses that were attributed to the serpent here and blame the fall of man on just the serpent? It is really clear in the way that the text is constructed from the grammar to the length of dialogue given to the characters, that the blame is on man, and that'll continue to be developed in this passage. Lastly, I want us to be sure that we are hearing this correctly. In verse 7, after their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked after eating the fruit, they sewed fig leaves for coverings. They're covering themselves. And we'll see why this is important here in a minute. Verses 8 and 9 say, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So I want to point out a couple of things that will continue to come up thematically throughout the entirety of Scripture, despite their loss in translation in this text. The sound of the Lord is really the voice of the Lord. And walking can really just mean coming or going. The Hebrew word halak uh, can mean to walk or simply to come, to go. It's uh, more vague. The Hebrew word kol for sound or voice is not interchangeable between sound and voice as it applies to God because God has been introduced as the character who commands through his voice, his word. So why would we translate it as sound, as if we can hear his footsteps? Theology, that's why. Adam can hear the voice of the Lord coming and going in the garden, and I want to emphasize this next part as well. He hears it in the garden, in the breeze of the day, that is the wind of the day, the ruach of the day, which is the very same ruach that was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2. God is wind. We'll hear this more and more as we continue through scripture. Lastly, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, and this word in Hebrew is pene, which is literally face. The face of God will also come up as we continue, but I would suggest that this is a catastrophic rendering, that is to translate it as the presence of God, that is more of a theological term than anything. God's face in scripture is his almightiness, his judgment. It's like the face of the father coming home to discipline his children. The mother says to the children, wait until your father gets home. So what do the kids do? They hide in their room, right? So we've got the voice of God, the mighty wind of God, and the face of God. Now, if I was a theologian, I would call that the Trinity, but I'm not. So I won't waste everyone's time and energy by trying to sound impressive. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid but I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So not surprisingly, the first thing that happens when God questions the man about his behavior is his first impulse is not only to blame his wife, but to also blame God for giving her to him. He frames his response in a way that makes it sound like God is partly to blame. The irony, of course, is that the woman was more or less asked for by Adam, in the previous chapter. Again, much like the disastrous monarchy that Israel asked for. So when things go under and their king Shaul, which means asked for in Hebrew, turns out to be evil and a horrible ruler, God can sit back and say that he told you so. Think back to the Psalms. Man plots, God laughs. This is exactly what is happening here. To add to the humor, the woman ends up also blaming someone else, namely the serpent. It is interesting that the only one of the three that doesn't blame someone else is the serpent himself. That's kind of interesting. So the authors aren't really putting most of the blame on the serpent, but on the man. Because if the man had been content with what God had originally given to him, he wouldn't have had the wife that was beguiled by the serpent in the first place. But what is even more striking is that God punishes them in a series of curses against the three players in this story, but leaving the most guilty one, that being the man, for last. So he begins by cursing the serpent, leaving the woman and the man to probably think that they were off the hook, and then immediately pronounces a curse on the woman, leaving the man to think he's off the hook, and then he leaves his longest and most scathing curse to the man for last so that it will linger longer and sting harder. It is incredibly forceful that the scriptural authors make mention of man returning to the dust that he came from. Remember that part of the serpent's curse is to eat that said dust. So now that man has listened to and obeyed the serpent, he is enslaved to the serpent in the way that the Israelites were enslaved to Pharaoh and later to their own Israelite monarchs. And this Adamah is also cursed now, meaning that man has condemned himself to death to the Tohu Wabohu, just as God had told him, no, had promised him what happened. God is not being vengeful or unreasonable here. He is just saying how things are and how the poor decisions and actions of these three individuals 
is going to consequently affect the land and its inhabitants. So the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It is really, really interesting that man's first action in the story is to give his wife the function of childbearer. This was certainly already alluded to, obviously, by God when he curses the function by adding pain to it. But this is the first explicit mention of Adam's wife as mother. We are told that the original mother, that is, the Adamah, has been cursed and will only produce thorns and thistles to the man. Thus, in order to keep his progeny alive, he gives his wife this function, even though it causes her pain. So really, Adam is thinking for himself when he calls his wife's name Eve. I mean, just think about how it's presented here in the story after we've heard about the function of the Adamah and everything like that. He has now this wife that he asked for, this wife that he was not content living in a world without, has now become literally his, his property, and now he is using her for his own purposes, for his own progeny. This is how it's being presented here. This is how it's reading uh, in, in context, in, in the Hebrew. And also, we need to think about how this comes to play later on in the story and how God will often intervene to plant his own seed of promise. See, what he does is that he puts a complete stoppage on the man's need to have a progeny, the man's need to control his own progeny, because he gives us several instances where there are a series of barren women who are kept barren by God explicitly to undermine human progeny, but to uphold the progeny of God's instruction. Again, right in the book of Genesis, we see how this is played out with the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Right. So consider everything that's happened so far in the story. God brought all life from the Adamah, and Adam created catastrophe. The ground is cursed because of his disobedience through his act of becoming like God after eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I say like in air quotes because Adam doesn't really become like God. Remember, it was the serpent who said that would be the case. Rather, man now knows the concepts of good and evil. What are good and evil? They're concepts of judgment. So they know the concepts that God intrinsically understands as the judge. These concepts have been added to Adam, and God knew beforehand that Adam having these would not be good. We see this is the case because what is Adam's first act after becoming like God? 
he reassigns the role of mother of all living from the Adama to the human female, a role which she is not suited for, because it is immediately after the issuance of these curses that all of the living will come through this now cursed man and woman. So the progeny will surely be cursed. And so, first of all, this is way more powerful than any concept of original sin I've ever heard. (laughs) And also, uh, the next important thing to point out is the creation of the garment of animal skins for Adam and Eve. It's not like they were still naked, as they had already attempted to clothe themselves by the fruit of their own labor, so to speak, with the fig leaves. Uh, But this isn't good enough. Man cannot cover his own shame by his own cursed hands. This is where divine intervention is necessary, and God covers the sins of Adam and Eve in a sacrificial act by covering their shame with the skins of the behemoth. This is very similar to an event in the next chapter, actually, where Cain presents an unsatisfactory offering of his own crops, whereas Abel presents a satisfactory offering of the firstborn among his flock of sheep. But we'll get to that in the next episode. What is of extreme importance for this instance is to understand that it is God that approaches us for atonement and not the other way around. God has not hidden from our presence, but like Adam, we hide ourselves from God and become absent in our iniquity. As St. John Chrysostom beautifully said in his introduction homily to the book of Genesis, the scriptures are like God's letter to his absent friends. He understood this point, that it is not God who is absent, it is man. So naturally, we as people, when reading this story, would assume that with God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, that they would be on their own. But we come to hear that they're not. He still shows up and provides for them. So God says that Adam has indeed become like he himself, God, in knowing good and evil, which again is not the same as being like God. Therefore, God casts Adam out east of the garden and places a cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life, lest Adam continue to eat from it and be cursed eternally. Despite the catastrophic sin committed by Adam and Eve in the garden, God's priority is mercy for them. This casting out is not a final judgment, but an opportunity. They are out from the garden and into the wilderness, where they will continue to be cared for by God as long as they listen to his commandments. May we strive to do the same, to submit to the scriptural God and the story of his salvation. Amen. Tree, which is planted by the streams of the world.